daily digest of the who, what, and why of Waterloo Region. Welcome to Kitchener Today on City News 570. I'm live, Yes, hosting on Kitchener Today here on City News 570. I've been guest hosting a couple of times before this. Just want to say it is great to be asked back. And uh, we have a lot to talk about over the next little while today. Uh, by the numbers, it's March 30th, 2022. Okay, two. Uh, just fact-checking that because sometimes I'm not sure. It, it is It is pretty incredible when you think about it. I remember still, and I think about this time to time, this whole social media push, remember, towards the end of 2020? And we talked about, boy, can't wait for this year to be over. Boy, say goodbye to this year. So long. 20. And um, the the 2021 was, I, I guess it happened. I, I know it, I was there. I just feel like my brain was on dial-up and not high speed or something. I don't know what happened. 2021 was just this, well, here we are. I sometimes look at the uh, the date on my screen and I'm like, what? Okay, it is. Yes, I understand that. Actually, during the last couple of years of COVID uh, and self-isolation, and I've been working from home a lot, and and I will actually enter into Google today's date, please. Have you ever done this? I've done this just occasionally when I'm like, I think it's Wednesday, but I just want to make sure. I just want the world to verify that, yeah, I'm I'm on at least the right day with everybody else. So, here we are. We're, you know, we're 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 it's sort of, I guess, starting year three of COVID. I don't mean to sound negative about that. Um, they say Ontario is well into the sixth wave, as are other parts of Canada. So, uh, you know, three waves per year. I guess this is uh, what we can expect. Hopefully, it's not as bad. Hopefully, all the vaccinations have helped, and and this isn't going to be as dire as it has been over the last couple of years at times. So. Uh, it is that. There's another number for you. Third year, sixth wave, March 30th, 2022. It is also day 35, which is another timeline that for me is sometimes difficult to compute um, because it seems like only last week and then it seems like forever at times that we've been dealing with and talking about this world crisis a crisis of war, a humanitarian crisis, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I want to touch on that today in a couple of segments. We're going to later on in the program talk about a Cambridge group who is uh, sending um, food over to Ukraine. Uh, We'll get to that later on in the program. Now I want to talk more about the politics of what's going on. Uh, You know what they say, that... um, War is politics by other means. So there is a lot of politics happening here, and especially now when we hear, in some cases we're told, that it, these are very concrete talks of of peace or a settlement to uh, this horrible crisis. And others say that the talks are another uh, ruse by the Rusians, uh, that this this is just a diversionary tactic uh, to what's really going to, uh, or what's really coming up, or what really Putin intends to do. So, this is the area I want to touch on. What's happening with the politics of it? How do the 
uh, how do the Ukrainian politics play out here as well? Our guest is an associate professor and uh, Jean Manet chair, uh, Department of Political Science at McGill University. Maria Popova is joining us. Professor Popova, thank you for coming on the show today. Hi, thanks for having me. First of all, I want to get your take on uh, the talks and negotiations that are going on so far to some sort of peaceful settlement. Do you feel they are um, are authentic and going in a positive direction? Um, unfortunately, I don't think they're authentic. Uh, the problem is that uh, Russia has not been able to achieve any of its goals uh, so far. Um, so... Russia has done this before uh, in other conflicts where they use the, um, the supposed uh, talks to regroup, to figure out uh, how to relaunch uh, their invasion. There is not a lot of reasons to be optimistic that these are real uh, negotiations going on uh, because uh, Russia's goal is ultimately taking um, all of Ukraine rather than just taking parts of the East, which is already controlled uh, through puppet uh, governments in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. Yeah, in, in Donetsk, especially, they, uh, I mean, it's a, it's a Russian state, right? I mean, there are Russian freedom fighters ensconced there and so on and so forth, correct? So the eastern part of, uh, of Ukraine um, had some protests in 2014, uh, but Russian interference sort of instigated uh, this uh, separatist uh, movement, and uh, Russia has, um, in over the last eight years, maintained uh, presence there, has given out 700,000 Russian passports to the population there. So, uh, so it's really basically Russian, uh, Russian territory at this point, uh, mostly, uh, if not in name. So it's, uh, it's hard to take now, uh, the message from Russia at face value that all they want is, uh, to actually take that territory there. They already controlled it. Uh, it's much more likely than their, that their goals are way bigger than this. So here's what I'm hearing. I'm sure you've heard it too, and, and you're more uh, involved and an expert in this area. But here, I've heard that, of course, there is an offer of, uh, of you know, consolation to those particular areas. I've heard other parliamentarians from Ukraine say, we can't um, abandon our people in eastern Ukraine. Why, we can't leave them alone. We can't concede them to Russia. Um, Ukraine wants all of Ukraine. And yet there is an offer on the table. Is there not, Professor, to say, all right, you take the eastern part, you pull out of Russia, we'll stay neutral, we won't get nuclear weapons, and let's call that a deal. Is that, is that a real deal that Zelensky is offering? Um, he hasn't actually offered uh, eastern Ukraine. He has offered uh, neutrality to emphasize that U Ukraine will continue to be neutral. It was neutral before the war. Uh, but he has offered to emphasize that it will continue to be neutral, uh, uh, neutral and he has offered assurances that it would not go nuclear. Uh, the eastern part is indeed uh, something that he has not promised because 
Uh, it's a part that was invaded by Russia just earlier uh, in 2014 rather than now. And it is true that now that Ukraine is defending its its territory, um, it's hard to let go of these areas as well because you just don't want uh, to award uh, aggression to say, well, because you took this, uh, through aggression, we're going to agree for you to keep it. Um, so they, they're they not willing to go that far now. Well, it's interesting, Professor, and our guest is Maria Popova, Professor in Political Science at McGill. It's interesting that even if they did, and I understand that they are not, but even if they did, this is no guarantee of another, uh, of no other war in five years, five months maybe, or five years, ten years. You know, it's it's always going to be an issue, is it not? Absolutely. You're very right. Uh, there is no guarantee that Russia would not invade uh, again. It's done so twice in eight years. Uh, how do we prevent it from uh, attempting uh, to take Ukraine again? I mean, that's why it's so hard to figure out a way to uh, to say, yes, Ukraine will remain neutral, uh, but it needs security guarantees from somewhere. Uh, once you've been invaded twice in eight years, you really want to make sure it doesn't happen again. Sure. When I hear uh, Vladimir Zelensky speak, uh, I, I wonder, I, it feels like he is, but I wonder, is he speaking for all Ukrainians? I know he was elected uh, with a tremendous majority, uh, but has he got the backing of Ukrainians? I think he does. In fact, uh, polls within Ukraine now show that, uh, that his uh, rating is way higher than it has ever been, uh, upwards of 90%. And I think even if we don't actually take polls uh, at face value, given that there's war, I think what we see is that in all parts of Ukraine, there is not only the army fighting uh, very uh, with a lot of determination, but also territorial defense units organized from volunteers on the ground uh, fighting uh, this Russian aggression. So I think actually he has, uh, the, the whole country is united around the idea that they don't want to cede any territory uh, to Russia. And that's what uh, Zelensky is um, he is speaking for the country rather than leading. I want to ask you uh, if you know anything about some of these groups, and I'll tell you why I'm asking, Professor, because uh, Putin's idea, and he still puts it out there occasionally, is the denazification of Ukraine and the Nazi regime, and it's ridiculous. Right. Uh, I think it's crazy talk, and it's uh, somehow a uh, a Jewish Ukrainian president is leading a Nazi party. I, it's it's crazy. However, having said all that, I keep hearing reports of a far right wing uh, militia group that is involved in fighting against the Russians, and nobody's really reporting on that. Is in fact, a, there is a far right movement in Ukraine. I, I guess every country is dealing with right wing, in some some cases, far right. Um, Right. Movements. Yeah. And, and is there one in Ukraine and how relevant are they? Yeah, of course, uh, Ukraine, like, as you mentioned, like most European countries, like all countries around the world, does have a far right movement. The things to remember, though, are uh, are the following. Um, only two percent uh, of 
the votes in the last uh, election went to far-right parties. This is way lower than in other European countries. The second thing to remember is that, yes, there is this uh, far-right uh, neo-Nazi, even you can call it, colonel within one battalion that is fighting in eastern Ukraine, the Azov Battalion. There are some, some neo-Nazis in that battalion uh, who hold uh, odious views, no doubt about that. But these are, this battalion is 900 people out of an army of 100,000. So, mm-hmm. yes, while there is a, a kernel of truth there, the scale of the far-right uh, problem in Ukraine is massively overstated. Uh, by Russia. Okay. In fact, uh, it is likely that Russia has more far right and more neo Nazis uh, within its borders than Ukraine does. I would not doubt that for a second. And, and thank you for clarifying that because I, I keep hearing these just vague references to advancements by a far right group fighting for Ukraine. And nobody really kind of said, you know, I mean, who wants to talk about those? groups but at some point i thought i wanted the clarification on that yeah they do exist but they're a tiny a tiny segment of um of the ukrainian army and of the uh territorial defense volunteers that are fighting for ukraine right now uh lastly professor uh we're numbering these days now day 35 day 36 tomorrow so on and so forth um, I, I turned on the news the other day, and it was 10 minutes before I heard anything about uh, the invasion of Ukraine. And is there a danger there where it just becomes one of those stories? Meanwhile, humanitarian crisis, lives are lost, but it, the rest of the world doesn't see it uh, for what it is. And, and, and therefore, as a result of that, I think it would be tougher to reach a, a resolution on this. There is a bit of a danger that attention is uh, is waning, but uh, at the same time, uh, a lot of the the measures in place put by uh, European countries and by NATO allies are still there. There's no likelihood of rolling those sanctions back anytime uh, soon, and unfortunately, I think it's it's also not likely uh, that uh, Russia will really sort of retreat. Uh, So we're indeed not going to see a resolution of this uh, soon, and I'm sure it will be back in the news uh, if fighting uh, escalates. This is, um, it is is difficult to uh, watch this as we are able to do now with cameras everywhere, Uh, but... um, my gosh, I just we all we all we all pray for a resolution of some sort of peaceful one, if possible. Professor Popova, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Maria Popova is associate professor and Jean Monnet chair, Department of Political Science at McGill University. Um, if you, I mean, our attentions do wane, and it's not like it's the only thing happening to us in the world we've got a lot to deal with in the world these are times you know it's the old curse may you live in interesting times and we certainly have been uh in this 21st century i would say um especially since about 2010 it has just been interesting interesting times uh but our attentions do vary if you're not 
talked out about this, I welcome your calls at 519-570-2545, 1-800-570-5715, toll free, star 570 on your cell phone. Later on in the program, we're going to talk to a Cambridge group that is sending food to the Ukraine. So it, it's it's not, you know, community to community across this country. It is not forgotten. It is not certainly back burner, uh, but it's, 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 you know, maybe it's just wear and tear. We, we've just heard about it for these 35 days. And now we're like, you know, and, and I do that. And every time I get a little exhausted on just the information, I'm like, Oh, you poor you, you're exhausted. Um, look at these people who've been, you know, displaced for a uh, better part of a month here and uh, their homes are destroyed and so on and so forth. So uh, I guess I don't have to re-up the importance of this particular issue. Anyway, we'll take some of your calls and talk more about this when we return with Kitchener Today. I'm Larry Fedorik on City News 570. The problem is that Russia has not been able to achieve any of its goals so far. So Russia has done this before in other conflicts where they use the supposed talks to regroup, to figure out uh, how to relaunch uh, their invasion. There is not a lot of reasons to be optimistic that these are real negotiations going on because uh, Russia's goal is ultimately taking um, all of Ukraine rather than just taking parts of the East, which it already controlled. That was our guest moments ago, Maria Popova, Associate Professor and Jean-Marie Chair, Department of Political Science at McGill, kind of getting the political view of um, what is going on vis-a-vis the peace talks, but certainly the politics of the Ukraine. Because uh, I, I often wonder as I watched the coverage over the last 35 days that, uh, you know, what is the political bent in Ukraine? Certainly they are united against uh, Russia, if you will. They are united against a lot of things about being a former uh, SSR and so on and so forth. Uh, what are they united for? Are they united for any kind of concessions or what are, are they united for any kind of peace negotiations? Certainly they want an end to this. Certainly they don't want to face, you know, these, these sirens. Um, and when you hear those air raid sirens in the news clips and things like this, is, is that not just one of the most bone chilling things you can hear? They are, oh man, they, they are scary. And of course, what is to follow those is much scarier, but, um, to, to live under those kinds of warnings every 40 minutes to, you know, Mariupol, which is basically off the map as a city now, as, as infrastructure is just gone, um, so many parts of Kiev, so on and so forth, other areas around Ukraine. Um, certainly they want that to stop, is my point, I guess. If somebody said, you know, this could stop tomorrow. But on the other hand, it's it's not a hostage situation. I mean, that's kind of what the war is, right? Um, we'll, we'll do this. You give us this and we'll stop. And there's only so much that I think they are willing to to give up. Now, I'm, I'm still, I guess, holding out hope against hope when I see people sitting at a table discussing this, that there is something that is going to come out of those discussions. Again, a lot, most people say that that um, the Russian side is really 
they're just there to be there. They're not really interested in any kind of peaceful uh, settlement. But uh, when I see the talks continue, I'm I'm always you know please something come from this. Hey, it, there's a strange little story today. It's out there. Um, I don't know the the importance or the gravity of it, but it is uh, Doug Ford refusing to release mandate letters to his ministers now. Um, when you set up a government and you set up a cabinet, you you know you sort of send letters to your ministers. Here's what I expect of you. That's your mandate in your portfolio. And usually these are released. Doug Ford doesn't want to, for some reason. So we'll talk to a political science expert out of uh, McMaster. I'm sure you know Peter Grave coming up in our next segment here on Kitchener today, City News 570. guest host today, Larry Fedoric. Great to be asked back to City News 570 and Kitchener Today. Uh, later on in the program, talking to a Cambridge group about food donations that they are uh, making and sending over to uh, Ukraine, which uh, as our previous topic, when we talked about the politics of Ukraine, we sort of talked about uh, the idea that uh, the story somehow, we, we get into this kind of information fatigue because of the amount of information we do get every day we get as i've said before we get real information we get misinformation we get disinformation it's kind of up to us to filter it all in and sometimes we just get exhausted and and even important stories we tend to fall fall back there and we don't think of them so it is just good to hear that there are people and, and groups of people uh in this country and i know around the world but certainly in this uh, country and in this part of the world as well in ontario uh who are still thinking about this and still seeing what they can do, this Cambridge group sending food over to Ukraine. And people say, well, you know, what What do they need? They need everything. You know, I can't I can't even imagine um, just losing everything. What, whatever you can carry is all you kind of have all of a sudden, and you just have to flee. And they, um, they need everything. So anyway, we'll talk about that a little later on in the program. I mentioned a story today that's just kind of out there. It's got me curious, and, and, it, and it may be nothing, and I'm sure our guest will – uh, give me uh, some perspective, help give us some perspective on this as well. But there are things called mandate letters that a leader will write to uh, his or her ministers. So here's what happens. You you run a campaign, you get elected to government, there you are. So you have a caucus and you have a cabinet and you have ministers that you appoint in charge of various portfolios and finance and transportation and infrastructure, so on and so forth. And they get mandate letters. Um, you know, I... Uh, when I, my first radio, real radio job, I remember going to my boss. I was so excited. I was young and green. And I went to my boss and I went, Hey, Hey, so what's, what's the format? What, what's the thing? How do we work this? What goes on? And my boss, this is a true story. We still laugh about it. He said, Oh, you know what? Just kind of go do your own thing. And I'm like, wow. Okay. This, this, I, what is my own? I don't know. This would never happen in government is what I'm saying. You don't just kind of do your own thing. Um, the the strategists along with the leader and everything say okay this is what we're trying to accomplish here's the mandate so you get a mandate letter and quite often these are these become part of the public record uh there are mandate letters dating back to when Doug Ford was elected in 2018 uh that he's been asked to release and has not and apparently he's willing to go to the highest court to say i don't want to release these which begs the question why mandate letters what it, it's very simple 
And even if there was something untoward in the letters, you wouldn't be foolish enough to actually put it in writing to a minister, would you? If uh, you know, and I'm not saying there is. I'm just like everybody's asking these kind of questions. Our guest is um, associate professor of political science at McMaster. It's great to talk to him again. Peter Grafe is joining us. Hello, Professor Grafe. Good afternoon. What what is this? <laughs> Let me start out with that question. Is this anything? Uh, well. In a way, it's not that much. I mean, you, I mean, you you did a good history of mandate letters, which you know emerged about fifty years ago as a way of you know prime ministers and premiers to have more command over what was happening in their governments, particularly as government got bigger and more complex. But until very recently, they were private. Uh, you know, it was a way to tell a minister what the priorities were to be, or you know which stakeholders to work more closely with. And it's only really in the past 10 years that, you know, provincially and federally, governments begin to release them because, uh, you know, after all, they're great PR because they signal what the government's going to do. And, uh, you know, it allows them uh, to make it look like certain things are priorities, um, you know, which can help them in in managing the expectations of stakeholders or to show, look, you elected us and now we're going to follow through on what we promised. So, uh, you know, it's a relatively new thing. But then, you know, citizens begin to feel like, well, maybe we should see all of these mandate letters if they're important important moments in a government deciding what it's going to do and what its its strategies are, shouldn't we as citizens uh, know what those are? And I think that's led to this request to, you know, through the freedom of information system to, to have these letters made public, whereas, you know, when they were written by Doug Ford and the people around Doug Ford, uh, the idea was that they were to remain private. And presumably they're a bit more frank uh, and not just about... Uh, you know, what would be the, uh, you know, the, the, the publicly saleable things that are being said in them. And so I think that's probably why uh, the Ford government wants to keep them secret. You know, there may be things about which stakeholders to work more closely with, uh, uh, you know, things that wouldn't be entirely unguarded, but nevertheless, you know, might be a bit embarrassing, particularly a few uh, weeks away from the provincial election. Well, and that is a key, isn't it, that we are about uh, two months away. Yeah, and, you know, if it was to say, you know, for instance, work with uh, developers, you know, to do X, Y, or Z, you know, that might cast a pall over that that announcement today about what's going on in the housing portfolio or in long-term care, if there's something about, you know, what the priority should be in long-term care. And, you know, on the other side of the pandemic, uh, those things might look, uh, you know, a bit naive or even, you know, sinister, right, uh, even if that wasn't right. the way they looked in 2018. So. You know, there's probably a fair bit of damage control in the minds of people around, you know, Doug Ford in terms of what was said then and how would that read now. So uh, when when you do these mandate letters and um, I, I mean, we know that if they're part of the public record, the majority of the people aren't digging through those and reading the letters. We might say we want the information to be public. We're not going to read these letters ever. We'll wait for somebody to read them and report on them. And then, of course, the other part is the special interest groups um, will be reading these letters. Uh, Is that the fear of certain special interest groups as opposed to the general public? I mean, I'm I'm not sure for the most part that they're they're too fearful of it. Uh, You know, it's not like they they were involved in the crafting of it, so it's not like you know, they'd be seen to to be uh, overly interested in it. Um, so, you know, I, I don't think there's that much concern there. I mean, you know, one way where this plays a bit more broadly is that it, it really deals with the question of, you know, what parts of our government are secret and which parts of the government can we as citizens have a look at. 
And, uh, you know, for the, the provincial government, they're making the argument that, you know, the, the discussion between the premier and, and a minister is kind of a bit like uh, a solicitor-client privilege. <laughs> Whenever they're talking about that, that's cabinet material, uh, you know, and it should be kept uh, private. You know, whereas, uh, you know, the citizens bringing this claim are saying, no, in fact, the law is clear that it's only the deliberations of cabinet that have to be kept secret when there's, they're actually meeting and making the decisions. And there's a lot of communication that, that should be public. And, uh, you know, it's part of, I think, a longer running, you know, question about how much secrecy is optimal in government. Uh, you know, for the most part, we think we should have things that are visible to us as citizens. Uh, but, you know, when we go back, say, to Dalton McGuinty and the, the gas plan scandal, you know, there was the fact that we learned that our politicians and senior bureaucrats often don't write things down. <laughs> they don't want it to be accessible through freedom of information, and we end up with government being run a bit like a a, a den of drug dealers <laughs> in terms of not wanting to write right. anything down uh, so that it can't be searched for. So, I mean, it's, it, it is, I think, in this case, a kind of a difficult principle, you know, where, where it's not clear that there's just one right or wrong answer. It's more about at what point do you draw the line in terms of what could usefully be kept secret in terms of the good functioning of our government, but uh, also given how powerful our prime ministers and premiers are and their, their executives are and the strength of bureaucratic power, you know, at what point do we citizens get a look in uh, in order to you know, protect ourselves and hold those uh, elites to account? Is this part? Do you feel, Professor, that this is part of sort of this this idea that there, you know, less government? I mean, one of the first things Doug Ford did was he he cut the Toronto government down, and 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 what people the argument against that was, well, less government actually means less representation. Is that part of a um, a, a political stance, a political uh, direction, if you will, and that this would be a part of it as well? Yeah, I mean, it could be. And certainly when, you know, Doug Ford was elected, he talked a lot about the importance of, you know, getting things out of the way of the exercise of power and slimming down government and we need less government, you know, which is a quite different uh, language than we hear from him today. And so I presume going into this election, uh, you know, again, that would be difficult for him if there's a disjuncture between, you know, a real language of, you know, the government's a problem, we won't want less of it, and, you know, Doug Ford today saying, no, we need the government to build these highways and be involved in subsidizing, uh, you know, the, the retooling of these auto plants that bring so much prosperity to our province and, and the like. So, yeah, I think that's probably part of it, too, in this instance, that uh, the language of the incoming Ford government is probably one that, uh, you know, there's a, I mean, maybe hypocrisy is too strong a word, but a sense in which uh, doesn't look a lot like what Doug Ford is making claims for uh, in 2022. Uh, just before we let you go, Professor, uh, do you sense that this is going to be much of a uh, of an election campaign? I mean, certainly we've got a we've got a lot of issues to deal with in our world these last uh, couple of years, and uh, we, you know we've been through federal election, but here's the process and provincially and. Um, I realize now it may seem back burner, but is it you feel it's really going to ramp up and be a heck of a fight over kind of May, May or well, it's beginning of June, so the month of May. Uh, no, <laughs> I mean I, you know, <laughs> I, I mean I think you know I think people when there's an election, people pay attention and they'll make choices, and you know they have a lot to think about in terms of where we've been over the past four years. Um, so, I mean, I think people are going to take it seriously. Uh, I think there will be choices on offer. I mean, it is, 
Is it more of the Ford government, or is it the alternative that Andrea Horvath or Stephen Del Duca are putting putting out there? Um, you know, what do we feel about uh, you know further uh, urban sprawl versus housing affordability? How do we think about transit? How do we think about how we're living in this province? Uh, so, I mean, there's a lot uh, that we've been through with the pandemic, and I think people will be making important choices. So, I don't I, I don't think it's going to be a really big election. Um, may not be that central to people's lives, but I think people are paying attention at the moment and thinking about, uh, you know, where we're at, even as the sixth wave kicks off. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying to remember last time Ontario had a minority government, did they? I'm, gosh, I've lived here over 40 years. I'm trying to remember if we ever had one. Well, uh, I'm trying to, I think it would be around 2012 or so, uh, after the McGinty uh, gas plant scandal, uh, he was right. re-elected well, well, with, course, a, with yeah. a minority that was lasted for about two and a half years. Right, 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 right. Gosh, I wouldn't, uh, for some reason I was going too far back in history to try and uh, remember. But uh, interesting stuff. Peter Grave, thank you so much as always. You're welcome. Peter Grafe is Associate Professor of Political Science at McMaster. Well, I guess that's the answer. I mean, I, I found it curious, but I guess the answer is it's not really a thing. And the thing we started talking about was mandate letters uh, that, uh, and one thing Peter pointed out that I didn't know, I, I thought the the making mandate letters public was just something we did for the last half century or more. Apparently not. Apparently only recently have these mandate letters become public or been able to be made available uh, to the public from various levels of government, uh, Doug Ford doesn't want to do that. So the mandate letter to the minister, and that's to the minister of blank. Here's what here's what we're working on. Here's the direction you should be taking. Here's who we might want to work with. It, it's not you know it's not a two paragraph one pager. Uh, I imagine it's a fairly extensive document that's called a mandate letter. And here's what we we want to do. And it may get very specific in two. We work with these people. We want to bolster this group, not this group, so on and so forth. As would any government, as would any government have a political bent or a uh, an agenda of sorts that they would say, okay, here's how we move forward. And your minister, you're right at that, that level of this particular area, transportation, whatever it is. So here's where we want you to go. Now, um, if I would think, and th- this would be my um, devious way <laughs> to do this is, is I wouldn't put the tremendous great detail in there. I would put the minimal detail I had to by law because uh, I would think that's the way politics works is, you know, if I'm going to write something down or send it in an email or have it on a recorded conversation where it's a matter of public record, um, I mean, I want to say everything that's on my mind. I may call you aside and go, by the way, here's how stuff really works, you know, or whatever. Uh, I mean, that's just me being suspicious of politicians. Go go figure. Woo. Yeah. So, um, but but if these mandate letters, which Professor Graves suggested, maybe they include a little more detail than one would want to see in public, why you would write that down in the first place, I don't know. But... Um, on the other hand, if they do, maybe that's why Doug Ford doesn't want them released. And the story today said he is willing to go, that, that if people fight him on this, that they will, uh, there are groups and people who will take him all the way to the Supreme Court, Supreme Court of Canada in order to get these 
these mandate letters released. Uh, I, I mean, I don't know. There's an election, you know, two months away, basically. And um, it just seems like I started the show talking about the passage of time and how it's hard for me. Two months away in the Ontario election seems like six months away. You know, it, it, just look out your window today. How close does June feel? It doesn't. But it is going to be here fairly quickly. And the campaign will ramp up in about four weeks and we'll start to see, you know, the ads and the lawn signs and things like that. And we're seeing even now we're seeing many, many uh, moves which is, by the way, typical of any party, provincially or federally, or any candidate, who um, will will start to ramp up the the benefits of their government. Look what we're doing for you. You know, just before the election, suddenly, oh, you're offering us this and that and that. So we're seeing that ramp up already ahead of the election. Uh, you know, Monday was a classic example. Doug Ford was was out there with. Uh, the prime minister uh, talking about the federal program of how of, of affordable daycare uh, and early learning. And, and uh, it's a federal program, but Ontario had to sign on. And certainly, you know, you want the credit, you want the credit for this and that's happening a lot. So that's part of the campaign that's starting already. Could these mandate letters being released be the negative aspect of a, of the campaign? I don't know. Um, Making it, Again, maybe it's not a big deal, but making it this kind of bigger deal certainly arouses curiosity. I'll just call it, I won't even call it suspicion. I'll call it curiosity. 519-570-2545-1-800-570-5715, toll free, star 570 on your cell. If you want to talk about this or, you know, if something else is on your mind, please let us know. Love to talk to you here on Kitchener today on City News 570. Well, maybe we should see all of these mandate letters. If they're important moments in a government deciding what it's going to do and what its strategies are, shouldn't we as citizens know what those are? And I think that's led to this request to, you know, through the Freedom of Information System, to have these letters made public, whereas, you know, when they were written by Doug Ford and the people around Doug Ford, uh, the idea was that they were to remain private. And presumably, they're a bit more frank and not just about, you know, what would be the, you know, the, the, the publicly saleable things that are being said in them. And so I think that's probably why the Ford government wants to keep them secret. Make letters from a premier to his ministers. Why can't we see them from Doug Ford to his cabinet ministers back 2018? That was Peter Graf, their associate professor political science, McMaster University commenting on that. you have a thought on that uh, as to why we can't see them? 519-570-2545 if you want to talk to the program. 1-800-570-5715 is toll-free, star 570 on your cell. If you want to do that, I'm Larry Fedorik, guest hosting today on uh, Kitchener Today. I, I mean... I, I don't know. I, I, as Professor Graves said, perhaps it's just a matter of they're generally more frank than other letters might have been in the past from other leaders to their ministers, be they provincial, federal, what have you. I, I don't know. Certainly, I have seen a change in uh, Premier Ford over the last four years. And, and this is not a slight by any means. It's It's more a compliment. It's almost though like he has learned politics. 
um, in the like he was a lot more brash. I want to say confrontational even in 2018. And if you remember 2018, it's still very much a Trump era. Not that that's gone away, but um, he kind of has a little bit. We'll, you know, we'll watch America to see what his influence is and will be. Uh, but in that vein, there was very much a, um, and this is only the way I perceived it, obviously, but it, there, there was there was a there was sort of this uh, idea of confrontation, d- distrust of media, that kind of thing, and. and and Doug Ford, I found him very, very brash. And maybe that was his business style beforehand. I, I don't know. We only started to see him a little bit because of Toronto Council and Rob Ford, the worldwide phenomena that was Rob Ford. And we saw Dougie as a supportive brother, what have you, what have you. And, and I guess knew him enough to elect him. But after that, you know, what, what kind of leader would we be getting here in Ontario? I have many thoughts on that, but I'm going to save them for another time because I really don't want to get into that here. But just as as an observation, somewhere in this uh, couple of years uh, that, well, nearly four now, but in the first couple of years, we saw this transition. And I I, I don't know if I trust the transition. And the classic, another classic example was Monday. You know, Monday here is... He is he is uh, Christian Freeland's and Justin Trudeau's best friend, and just can't say enough glowing things about the great partners that the federal government have been. And I'm just like, is he biting his lip saying this? You know, are his fingers crossed behind his back? Is he? Because I don't know how much you know. He uh, maybe he means it, but I don't know if he feels it, man. I don't know if he really feels like. Oh, those great liberals. I wish I was one, you know, Doug Ford. I don't know. But he's just, he's hes different towards media. Maybe they're different towards him. Um, he's, I, I think he's sort of learned in politics as opposed to business. And I realize that the two are intertwined, but maybe he realized it's like in, in politics, here's how we're going to play this game. Because the game on day one, day one, after you are elected to power, this is a fact of life across all political lines. Day one after you're elected to power is, okay, how do we get reelected? Yeah, I know. I mean, you know, you want to do this, this, and this. You have to govern. Please run the place. But also, how do we get reelected? Speaking of one of the Ford policies, they are making it easier in a couple of different ways for uh, you and me to uh, get into a, a, a home, to home buying, home ownership. We're going to talk about that in our next segment, just after one o'clock here on Kitchener Today. Welcome back to Kitchener Today. I'm your guest host today, Larry Fedorik. Uh, also have a chance to guest host tomorrow. So uh, that'll be fun. It's great to be here on City News 570 in uh, Kitchener in the Waterloo region. Having a lot of fun doing this, having a blast. And and a schedule change. Interestingly, at noon when I came on the show, I was talking about the passage of time and how, you know, 2021 just went by just like that. And um, how, you know, day 35 of the Russian invasion of Ukraine just sometimes doesn't feel like day 35. feels like... 
day four or something, you know. Well, here's another time thing that apparently I can't figure out. And that is a uh, just a correction to something I said <laughs> minutes ago. That's my show. Half of the show is me saying things, and the other half will be me correcting what I previously said, apparently. So, <laughs> nevertheless, uh, we will be talking about housing and the Ford government uh, moving in a couple of directions to uh, increase housing availability and affordability here in the province of Ontario. But we're going to do that in uh, at the 2 o'clock hour, not the 1 o'clock hour. This is, for the record, the 1 o'clock hour. I know that now. So at, at 2 o'clock, we will pick up that topic. Um, if you're thinking about home ownership and who isn't, if you're a renter, a young renter especially, a young person wanting to get into home ownership, uh, it's a big deal. And, and a couple of things are driving um, unaffordability. One is, of course, inflation. Um, then, then you know, you have to be able to afford a mortgage. So they're looking at that because a lot of the uh, inflation in uh, home buying is driven by foreign investors. Uh, I say a lot, a, enough of a percentage to affect the market. Uh, I believe there are some moves being made there, as other provinces have done, about so-called foreign ownership. Uh, and they're making some moves there and also increasing, uh, well, building more homes, basically. So availability, uh, supply and demand. What's the supply of homes? Well, there aren't enough. So whatever's out there is worth more. And if you build more homes, theoretically, then you're going to make more uh, more supply, so on and so forth. So they, they made a couple of moves. And that's what I want to talk about that. And our guest is scheduled for next hour, two o'clock. I, I want to, if you, and I'm, let me give out the phone numbers right now, because I was listening to uh, producer Pauly earlier, and it was something that was on my mind this morning, uh, even before uh, the nine o'clock hour, uh, the increase of speed limits on 400 series highways in Ontario. And it was quite the discussion. And I want to, you know, if there's any leftover discussion or thoughts there, uh, I want to hear from you because I got some thoughts on this, uh, more than a few, but share them with me. Uh, This idea that the speed limits on a number of 400 series highways in Ontario will go up to 110 kilometers per hour. Now, there is a group, and they were on with Brewster Pauly earlier, uh, called um, Stop100.ca. They want to, um, they don't even think 110 is, is enough, but they certainly don't want it at 100, which it is. So they got, they got part of their wish, I guess, in that speed limits on some 400 series highways will go to 110. Anyway, the numbers, uh, let me give up the numbers if you have thoughts on this. 519-570-2545. That's 519-570-2545. 1-800-570-5715. 1-800-570-5715. That is toll free. Star 570 on your cell phone. So, speed limits, 110. I guess, why not? Uh, who does the speed limit? So I do a podcast called Later That Same Life. It's kind of what I've been doing the last couple of years, uh, working from home and all those kinds of things, all those other factors. I'm doing a podcast. People are doing podcasts. Everybody's got a podcast. I don't care that everybody's got a podcast. I'm going to have one too. It's an incredible market. There are millions of podcasts around the world. But I 
uh, I, I wanted to do one. I own a microphone, so let's start doing a podcast. And I did a podcast for a year that was a personal journal, and it was called I Was Eight. And I've mentioned before, um, you know, uh, don't want to be braggadocious, but uh, uh, the podcast did win an award, a Canadian podcast award, as best uh, personal series. So that was great to win a national award, and it inspired me to keep on going. My current podcast, which I've been doing for about a year, and it's a weekly podcast, it's called Later That Same Life. And it's wherever you get your podcasts. I know people say that, but literally, it's on all the podcast sites. And you just have to look it up. Later That Same Life, Larry Fedoric. And I also made a YouTube channel, so I can feature my podcast on that as well, if it's easier for you to click on YouTube. But I've had a chance to kind of jump into a lot of subjects. And later that same life has been um, kind of like my own personal little radio talk show that I used to do. So a lot of the topics we cover is uh, are of, uh, uh, you know, political nature, our life today. I call it stories from our lives. You know, they can be personal, they can be public interest, whatever they are. And we talk about these things on, or I talk about these things on the podcast. One of the things I looked into recently that was very interesting, it became very interesting to me, was social contracts. And we all live under these social contracts. And the whole concept, and I, I don't want to get boring historical here. I'll, I'm going to capsulize it, believe me. Tell us more, Professor. No, I'm not going to do that. Uh, is this going to be on the test? No. It's social contracts began about... 400 years ago or so. They started in the 1600s, 1700s. 1700s is also known as the Age of Enlightenment. A lot was going on. It was very historical time, as these are historical times. 1700s, if you remember, a few things happened in the 1700s. One of them was you know, America, 1776, America began. And then uh, there was the French Revolution. There was a lot of things going on. And what really was going on in a lot of ways was this idea that People didn't want to be run by monarchs, dictators certainly, but were getting away from kings and queens and things and setting out on their own and new colonies in America and the, and, and the French Revolution and so on and so forth. And the, the concept by very learned men that had written about this was, okay, if we're going to govern ourselves, if we're going to run our own thing and not just be told what to do by a king, queen, or somebody else or a despot, we need a set of rules. And we all have to agree on these rules. And even the rules we don't agree on, we all have to follow the rules in order for everybody to get along. Even the, I follow the rules, even the ones I don't quite like. And you'll follow all the rules, even the ones you don't quite like. And we'll all get along. So social contracts, the biggest ones are, are laws and regulations and statutes that are on the books. We all agree to not kill each other. Murder is not allowed. And, and some people are still going to do that. So we'll set up a system of justice to deal with that. But otherwise, here's our social contracts. There's two kinds of social contracts that we live with every day. One is explicit and one is implicit. Uh, implicit is what it means. It's implied. So, those are our courtesies. A typical one would be I'm walking through the door to go to into the store. Somebody's right behind me. I hold the door for them. 
that's a social contract that's implicit. It's implied. I'm not going to jail if I don't do it, but it's a nicety. It's a courtesy. A lot of, we have a lot of social contracts that are just kind of like that etiquette, you know, but the explicit ones are the laws and the, the classic example of one that is both <laughs> is a speed limit. That's where I'm getting to. Speed limits are the classic example of an explicit social contract. You do this, but nobody does it. Nobody goes 100 on the highway. Uh, nobody goes 60 on the street. They go 65, they go 70. And then at some point, because it's an explicit social contract, it's a law, if you're not doing it, we can take care of you, right? So that's, I've, I've looked at social contracts because today so many people don't follow them. I'm not, I'm not getting a vaccine. Well, that's, that's implicit. We, we asked you to get a vaccine. We didn't have a vaccine mandate. In some places had a mask mandate. Uh, you had to follow, you know what I'm saying? That, that it's an obvious difference. But a lot of people today don't follow social contracts. They just break them. They're just like, I'm sorry, the rules don't apply to me. Speeding is just one of those things where we always kind of played with it. We did what we thought was best and safest for us. And as long as that OPP cruiser left us alone, we were pretty good. We did 110, 120, 125. Not 140, 145, but we, you know, we were down at that range. So I got a lot of thoughts on speed limits. Uh, I don't mind that the speed limits might go up on 400 series highways. I also think while they're looking at it, they should take speed limits down in school zones to 30. I think that's an obvious uh, there's a big difference between hitting somebody at 30 and 40 to that person's inner organs and body. Believe me, it's a big difference. School zone is a couple of blocks at best. You can't go 30 for a couple of blocks uh, winding through the neighborhood. I would just like to see all of that go down to 30. Uh, while we're looking at speed limits, there could be other changes. Uh, I don't know that 60 should be the sort of generally accepted street speed could be 50 uh, highways a hundred seems a little slow it's it, it's really fascinating that this is and here's a tip for the ontario government real quickly and then i'm, I'm going to get to darren here in a second because i know darren is patiently holding but I, I i think the other thing is here's a tip for you uh electronic speed signs if you're going to replace speed signs electronic is the way to go because if you want to change it to 115 a year from now or 120, it's going to be a big cost. It's much easier, just like gas price signs. It's so easy to change the number. You don't have to go up on the ladder anymore and change the sign. <laughs> Makes it easier for gas to go up nine cents or down nine cents as it did today. But um, electronic speed signs. Uh, do you like this idea? Darren is joining us. Hey, Darren, thanks for holding. What's up? Hey, hello. Um, yeah, hey, just to the last point there about electronic speed signs. I uh, I just got back from a road trip. My wife and I went to to Nashville and then up to Cleveland and then home. And uh, oh, I love those. I love those two cities, by the way. Two of my favorite cities. Yeah, Nashville for the music, and then Cleveland for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So yeah. Yeah, I've been there. It's great. So, yeah, in coming home, we went over to Fort Erie, and in Pennsylvania, for the short stint that we're in Pennsylvania, they have electronic speed signs. And the weather was turning bad. There was some sort of icy kind of weather like we were having today. 
and they actually the electronic speed signs lowered the speed uh, the speed just because of the weather. So even though my GPS said 60 miles an hour, they wanted you to travel at 50. So I thought that was interesting. That is interesting. I never even thought of that factor. Or you can yeah. kind of change it on the fly. That's brilliant. Yeah, the salters were out and they were slow and all that. And, and yeah, my GPS said do 60, but the signs are flashing. No, oh, do 50, do 50. Um, but anyway, my point about the, the speed limits I wanted to make is, is you know, I, I, I'm okay with the speed limit going up to 110 for certain sections of the 401, as long as it is just those certain sections. I don't believe people will always abide by those sections. And the reason why... Um, like our ability to strictly enforce that would be key to any change in my mind is because of the difference in speed that different people travel. Now, years ago, I was unfortunately witness to a pretty big accident on the 401 coming over the flyover, coming on to go to eastbound 401. And there was one of those big uh, yellow boon cranes that, you know, that have four wheels in front and four in the back. And he had his yellow light flashing. And, and I guess cars were, ducking behind him to get off on Hespler Road and then realized that he was going 80 kilometers an hour or something. So then they went back into the faster lanes to get back into in front of him. And in doing so, a transport truck nearby got cut off and actually smashed through the concrete median into the westbound lanes. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, yeah, everyone, cars slid into that truck that hit the, hit the guard, the middle, the middle rail there, and it was just an absolute mess. And the reason was that the, I, ca I called the police afterwards and asked because they kind of I saw it in the newspaper and they kind of explained it. I'm like, well, no, that's not what happened. And the reason because all this started was because apparently that boon crane, that big yellow monster crane, is regulated to drive at 80 kilometers an hour and have their yellow lights flashing. So it's the difference in speeds that get people in trouble. So to me, certain parts of the 401 where you're in the country, there's no off-ramps and off-ramps. Yeah, 110 is good, and people need to abide by that. However, I don't think if you're doing 130 and you're trying to get off, I don't think our on-ramps and off-ramps are made to be jumping on the brakes. And alternatively, if you have to slow down while you're in the through lanes, again, it's the difference in speed that I think is going to be the most dangerous thing. So we, have mm -hmm. to, we should you know, be considerate of, we should consider making our on-ramps and off-ramps longer. Um, well, there's the other there's the other part of it. I I thought that uh, earlier, Darren, where uh, our our highways and infrastructure all built for 100 clicks, and if if suddenly we're at 110 or 120, if they go up again, can it take it? I wonder that myself. But we're back to your original point of electronic signs. Uh, so if it's 110 for this section and then 100 um, a few kilometers down the way, then uh, the signs tell you that'll be that's another case for electronic signs, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I, I think electronic signs would be a great idea, but it, it has to be enforced. Um, right. And, and, and well, again, driving through the states, there's numerous spots where the speed limit is 70 miles an hour, which is 112 kilometers. And uh, right. you know what? Those transport trucks, um, yeah, like they're not doing, they're not doing, they're flying by. And it's, you know what? It's just, it's quite something seeing these trucks. There's so many trucks, right? And they're in the fast right. lane in the states, oh in many places, and yeah. they're and they're doing probably the equivalent of 130 Canadian uh, kilometers. And wow, that's just wow. a, a scary thing the way they kick up mist and they wobble a little bit in their lanes and all that stuff. Um, so, uh, great, great call, Darren. Darren, great call, great information. I, I want to get to Dave before the break. Thanks, Darren. Hey, Dave, welcome to the program. What's up, Dave? Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. I don't know if anybody's aware of it or not, but. Uh, 
in between St. Catharines and Hamilton has been at 110 for probably about three years. Right when, right when Doug Ford got elected, he said he was going to put that one as a trial, and it's been 110 for about three years now. And I drive up there, you know up what? and down there all the time. You know what? And I knew that. I absolutely didn't remember it till you just said it. You're right. Yeah. Wow, and yeah. You, know, you, know, you can drive up there at 120, and nobody's passing you. If anybody's afraid, they say, well, if you put it at 110, they're going to go 140. People drive what they're comfortable at, and 120 seems to be the speed that they're comfortable at. Nobody's passing you at 140 or 150 or anything like that. But it's been like that for about three years. Right. Yeah. And so far, so good. Dave, thanks for the call. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I, boy, great recall. How, how would I forget that? Because uh, I used to be on that highway. So the, uh, I, the Dave made the point, and it was made earlier when producer Polly was talking about this this morning, is, is that people will drive where they're comfortable. So to say that, you know, everybody does 110 and 120 now because it's 100. And if we go 110, everybody's going to go 120, 130 and 140. I don't know. I don't. I don't know, like that difference is, is I would, I always had small and mid-sized cars. Uh, I never had one of those big floaters where you're doing 140 and you don't even know it, you know? Um, I've, I've always had this comfort zone where I, you kind of feel if you're an experienced driver, there's the other thing, experienced driver, you, you call it, you have this feel of where you're at. If suddenly you look down at the, um, speedometer and it's like 135 and you're like wow no 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 i'm gonna you know back off this uh, a little bit anyway a couple more of your calls on this when we return with more of kitchener today in just a moment and i am your guest host larry fedoric we're talking about raising the speed limit on ontario 400 highways to 110 which is happening and if you caught uh, producer Polly this morning on City News 570, great discussions, great calls. And it was and it was on my mind and I was going to call the show. And then I thought, well, I'm, I'm actually doing a show <laughs> later. Uh, uh, boy, I'd love to talk about that as well. So it, it's um, it's interesting. I'm, I mean, I'm totally good with it. 110. You said if you if you said let's raise the speed in school limits, I would have a big problem. As a matter of fact, I actually think that while we're changing speed limits, we should drop the school zone speed limit to 30 uh, across the board. I don't, I don't think that's too much to ask. Uh, but anyway, 159, excuse me, 519-570-2545-1800-570-5715, star 570. Here's Tom on the show. Hey, Tom. Hi. How are you? Good, uh, how are you? The speed is pretty big on the 400 on the, and the 401 all over uh, because right. when you're traveling – you're traveling, supposed to go 100. Like I drive to Toronto sometimes, and everybody's passing you with at least 120, 130, 140. Now, the way they do it here, they put cameras. They should put cameras wherever they're going to put them. But way before you get to the intersection, they should have big signs saying there's a camera. Because, I mean, your intention is to slow and have no accidents rather than not say that there's a camera to catch him and pay him and have the guy pay. So right. uh, it's like in the early days, you know, like on the 400 well, or 401, they used to have all kinds of empty uh, OPP vehicles and people, when they saw them from far away, they 
slow down. So yeah, the, the ghost vehicles, Tom, I'm right out of time. Thanks for your call. No. Sorry about that, Tom. Um, I'm right out of time. And, and Tony, if you want to hold on, we can take you after the break and, and uh, before we move on to our next thing. So if you want to hold on, Tony, you can, or call back. Yeah. The, the red light cameras are one thing. I think Tom's almost talking photo radar again, bringing that back, which I'm not so sure. Uh, and then, of course, the ghost cars that were, uh, I thought they worked. I, I, I don't know if they still do that, but I always thought it, was be, uh, it would be a good idea. Uh, Kitchener Today with Larry Fedorik, your guest host, will continue in a few minutes. Welcome back to the program. Larry Fedorik here, your guest host. Uh, I actually get to guest host this show tomorrow as well. So thank you for having me in Kitchener-Waterloo and on City News 570. And I want to get on to our next uh, topic here, but before we do, just before the break, we were talking about the speed limits increasing on certain 400 highways from 100 to 110. And Tony was patiently waiting to get on to talk about this, so I do want to get Tony on here. Hey, Tony. Hello. May I talk? Hello. Go ahead. Uh, I celebrate recently over 25 years in this, uh, my favorite country, Canada, but I was always amazed how we do not like confirms that somebody doing something better than we do as Canadian, North American, etc. Uh, I would like to make my story short. I've been a long time ago in Germany and have opportunity to drive over the autobahn from Germany to uh, France to whatever, mm -hmm. etc. And what I catch, no speed limit at all. But nobody, yeah. nobody practically going in left lane, try to do something stupid. Because once I drive on middle lane passing somebody, I saw that somebody passed me with such speed, I only recognize that it's a red car. Can you imagine 250 or 300 kilometers? And I didn't see even one single accident over there. I tried to imagine what happened if it's going to be here on 401. Hmm. That's it, what I would I, like to tell. No speed limit, but start to teach people to drive properly, to drive reasonably. People now, uh, recently I'm driving heavy truck, and what I see in nighttime, people don't know where is headlights. Sometimes he drives yeah. with uh, daylight 50 kilometers in front of me. It's a lot of stupid yeah. things. This easiest way to get license it will have to be cut we have to do something studying from germans how they arrange uh, receiving uh, driver license in this country maybe right. we don't have to copy completely this system but have to take some good things from the germans how they explore highway autobahns etc etc thank you tony great call Thank you, Tony. That was a great call. You know, I, I mean, well, people always talk about that. No speed limits on, on the Autobahn. And I don't have stats in front of me to say that, oh, that that's the way to go or that we could even um, accomplish that here. I mean, you brought up a lot of great points, Tony, so many. Uh, it, it's worthwhile when you study other systems, you can't just sort of take the parts. You have to study the whole system and see how it works. As far as I don't know how to retrain drivers in in this country, because I'll tell you, Everybody on the road, except for me, is an idiot. So um, why am I the only really good driver? I I'm being facetious to make a point. 
I don't know how you retrain. Do you re-up? Do you, do you redo the driver education? Uh, do you make it mandatory for future generations? Do you change the driver's test? Do you um, then have to re-up your license with a, a fit? I mean, it, this is all very expensive, with another test every three years, five years, 10 years? I don't know what it is. Um, it, it's, it's just, yeah, it does come down to drivers, uh, and and Tony brought up another pet peeve of mine in that uh, most cars have running lights now so that you have to have your headlights on during the day. I don't know why running lights don't include the rear lights because so many times, and I've done this myself a couple of times, of course, I had, I had a setting on my car was that I always kept on auto for the lights, kept it on auto. So the, the, the headlights full headlight system came on when it was needed. Uh, People who don't do that and they're driving in their car and they have some interior lights and running lights at the front and they have no taillights and they're driving at night. And I, I just think auto manufacturers to look at just, you know, this auto feature should just be standard on all cars and running lights should include rear lights. Uh, Because when you're driving in a storm, for example, um, you got your headlights on, but then, you know, your visibility is low. You come right upon somebody because their, their full lighting system isn't on. That should just be a, that should be a manufacturer's thing. If people aren't going to do it, put it in the machinery, put it in the tech. Anyway, so many good points. Maybe we'll pick this up later because I do want to talk about um, this right here because it's, it's so cool. During this, and we started the program talking about Ukraine and the humanitarian crisis. We take small consolation in these times of crisis when we see people step up and do wonderful things. And it's great because we can uh, look at the better side of humanity, at, at, at people who care about others, unlike, say, invaders of a free nation. Uh, what can we do to help? And there are people helping, including the people from uh, Ontario Christian Gleaners and their manager, uh, of this Cambridge organization is Elaine Marcus. She joins us now. Hello, Elaine. No, I can't hear Elaine for some reason. Oh, can you hear me now? I can hear you now. Hello, Elaine. Okay, perfect. Hello, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. The old famous, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Can you? <laughs> <laughs> Become part of our uh, of our jargon. Uh, anyway, Elaine, great to, great to have you on. Tell me a little bit about what uh, your organization out of Cambridge is doing, sending food to Ukraine. Okay, so a little bit about our organization. Uh, we call ourselves like a food bank, but to the world. So we take donated surplus produce, often produce that doesn't get to reach um, our shelves or the consumer because of shape, color, size, maybe it's um, just too much of a product at a certain time. We have volunteers that come in every day. We trim, we dry, and we package it into nutritious dried vegetable mixes that we give to mission and relief development organizations for distribution around the world. And of course, at this time, a lot of our food is going to be headed toward the Ukraine. And how much now? You're, this this latest shipment is quite significant. Yes. So the, the shipment that left yesterday was 1 million servings. Um, and we actually have before us requests for 3 more million servings. So 3 million more servings. 
Wow. What is, what is that challenge? Is that reachable? Uh, we are working on it. We, we will be able to meet most of it. And wow. there are other food dryers in the province, and we're hoping to work cooperatively with them um, to be able to fully meet it. But in, in order to do it in the short term, we'll have to work along with others, which is great. That's what we do, cooperate with other organizations. This is fascinating. How long have you guys been around? Where did this idea begin? Okay, so we started operations in September 2008, and the term gleaning is um, means to re, uh, gather from a field after it has been reaped or harvested. So we're not actually going into the fields, but we are gathering food, whether it's direct from the growers, from distribution centers, packing plants, um, and we take that product into our building. And sometimes it's too big, sometimes it's too small, uh, an odd shape, all those different things. There could be a blemish on it. And we have volunteers that come every day. They trim it and we dry it and we package it into 100 serving bags. Brilliant. I, I, you know, I've been kind of into this whole misshapen um, produce thing for a couple of years and how different companies have done different things. Uh, with it, you know, like, uh, okay, the carrot is not pretty, so let's make some carrot soup, you know, or whatever mm-hmm. uh, out of it. Uh, but but you guys actually work with people who, who sort of just dry it down and get it into a transportable form. Yes. So we would take it, um, you know, in its raw state and uh, we've gotten some of the PEI potatoes. We have got received um, baby carrots that are baby cut carrots might not be cut to the right size um let's see right now we have some cabbage that just is not able to be used all at once by the um source that we're getting it from and so we would process about 25 to thirty thousand pounds of produce every week and each day we would make about twenty five thousand servings of food at our building I'm just, I'm so impressed by all this. Sorry, I'm a little jaw dropped here. I got to be honest, this is amazing. This is amazing the more I find out about it. Um, and and you work with um, volunteers and all? Do you need people to assist you, to help you in any way? Yeah, so volunteers are always welcome. We have an online sign-up system that's found on our website, ontariogleaners.org. Um, and people can just spend a morning. They work from 8.30 till 11.30. And then the rest of their day is free to go about whatever they're doing. Well, I, I'm actually thinking more and more about volunteerism and volunteering in these days. And I think it's it's a good way for people to kind of, um, you know, they don't have to necessarily commit to like a full-time job. They can just get out and help when they can. This would be a great right. organization to do it with, I think. Yes. And we've had uh, businesses that come out for staff days. Um, but a lot of it is just individuals coming in yesterday, the volunteers that came uh, we're able to listen to the mission organization that was taking the food to the Ukraine and to hear some of their stories about rescuing people from bomb shelters. Um, and one of his stories was that they had to stop for gas and bought some hot dogs on their way. And that one elderly woman burst into tears because she had not tasted bread for nine days. Oh, my gosh. Um, um, yeah, because, I mean, the whole process, and I realize maybe that's not the particular area you, you're involved in, but the process of eating get uh, of even getting the food there, uh, getting any kind of supplies there is, you know, you're in you're in a war zone. I mean, it's it'll be very complicated. 
Yeah, and there are a lot of organizations that are working specifically towards that, determining the uh, best routes um, to get it there and which uh, border crossings are open for humanitarian aid. Um, but that's, yeah, that's that's beyond us. The, the groups look after their own shipping. We just provide them the food. And so, yeah, we're always looking for the donations of yeah. whether it's produce to dry or whether we can get connections with already dried foods. We've in the past received granola, uh, apricots, almonds, things that can be supplemented into the food as well. Wow, terrific. I, I, I love your humility there. We just provide the food, um, <laughs> the, which is the key. I know what you meant, Elaine, but it's just, uh, it just shows your, your, your wonderful attitude. How do people find you? How do people get a hold of you? Um, our website's ontariogleaners.org. They can visit there. They, there's videos to show what we do. Uh, we'd love to welcome people to our building. We, everybody gets a tour. They get to see what they're part of. And we always keep our volunteers up to date, uh, showing pictures whenever we can um, of where the food has gone. And so that they know they're not just, like today, just chopping sweet potatoes. They're doing more than that. And they're helping somebody around the world even some of our we always add some protein sources into our vegetable mixes as well so whether it's barley or split peas so we purchase the split peas from the midwest the barley is local and we keep all of our produce donors up to date on you know where is that food going the food you donated today this is where it's going to go once it's dried well uh ontario gleaners you said dot ca dot org dot org oh of course it is of course, it's an org. Uh, boy, Ontario, let me correct that again. OntarioGleaners.org. Elaine, in your way, you've made my day. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Elaine Marcus is a manager of uh, the OntarioGleaners.org, Ontario Christian Gleaners. Ontario Gleaners, G-L-E-A-N-E-R-S.org. I don't think, uh, I always use Gleaners in a sort of an intellectual uh way i didn't actually know the true meaning of gleaning you know what i've what i've gleaned from your conversation what i have gleaned from your lecture so in a way it does mean the same thing you're kind of uh uh seeing what's there after the harvest you know so you sort of harvested uh, uh the words and and understand the meaning so i understand the meaning of gleaning but i didn't realize it was an actual harvest agricultural term uh which i should have known as a kid who grew up on a farm that we gleaned out there. Speaking of which, I did grow up on a farm, and we always had, it was a big farm, prairie farm, grain farm. So you could take um, you could take a half an acre and make that a garden, and they did. I mean, there was no problem. The quantity of land was built, you know, land was no problem. So you just take an acre of land, half an acre near the house, and just rows of potatoes and carrots and, you know, everything. And, and uh, I love those days. I remember those days fondly. What I do remember from them also is nobody cared about what it looked like. It, it misshapen potato or an odd-looking cabbage or a, a weird carrot. Uh, nobody cared because grandma made it good and, and it was great stuff. And, and somehow now, you know, because we're very urban these days and all this stuff, now not only have we become this urban you know, we, we get our produce at a produce section of a grocery store, but we've, you know, the presentation and everything has become so important. 
and you walk into the produce section and there's a, the, the red shiny apples and the red tomatoes and the green cucumbers and the lettuce is looking fantastic and, 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 and the melons and the grapes, you know, and it's become about this presentation. And I, I'm glad generally over the last couple of years, there's been a greater awareness of, hey, it doesn't matter. And if it does matter to you, I'll tell you what, we'll, we'll just chop up the potato and make some fresh potato soup here and you'll buy that instead. Or, you know, whatever it is that we're going to make out of these misshapen vegetables. Or how about this? If, if potatoes and, and nice and round and, and golden are your thing, even though you're just going to peel them and cut them up, um, then you take those at that price, these misshapen potatoes are going to be the half price. You know, previously... Uh, a lot of these things got wasted or um, made into feed for animals, which sometimes, you know, necessary as well. I get that. Uh, but now here's here's a group, these Ontario gleaners, who take all of these misshapen uh, foods or not necessarily just misshapen, but supplemental foods and, and misshapen foods and whatever they can get and uh, turn them into dried food and send them, um, like she said, a food bank only for the world. Isn't that something? A food, that was a great statement. That's what I said when I said to Elaine, you've made my day. It's it's just in tough times, it does the hard good to hear about people like the Ontario Gleaners uh, who are doing all this work and doing it since 2008 out of Cambridge. Did you know they were doing this? Well, I just found out and it's fantastic. So uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk more about, about food and, and uh, people who help and all of these kinds of things. We'll give out the numbers and to talk more about this as Kitchener Today continues in just a few minutes. I'm Larry Fedoric, your guest host. We call ourselves like a food bank, but to the world. So we take donated surplus produce, often produce that doesn't get to reach our shelves or the consumer because of shape, color, size. Maybe it's just too much of a product at a certain time. We have volunteers that come in every day. We trim, we dry, and we package it into nutritious dried vegetable mixes that we give to mission and relief development organizations for distribution around the world. And of course, at this time, a lot of our food is going to be headed toward the Ukraine. Isn't that incredible? That was our guest moments ago, Elaine Marcus. She's manager of Ontario Christian Gleaners. And that's the work they do. A million meals going out of Cambridge to Ukraine. And a request for, I think she said, three million more that they will be able to do in the coming weeks. Pretty incredible. Um, and as she described, the process of drying and, and packaging, it's food that travels. Okay, so... Uh, it can get over there and, and, and exist on its own for a while before it is consumed, if, if that's what has to be. And uh, it's the kind of food that is necessary to get to um, to the Ukraine right now, to many parts of the world, of course. There's a great uh, hunger problem worldwide, but in this particular humanitarian crisis, they are doing that. OntarioGleaners.org, if you want to know more OntarioGleaners.org. Gleaners is G-L-E-A-N-E-R-S. And uh, I think I'm going to, I think I was just thinking, I was looking at this. I think I want to make glean my first word guess on Wordle tomorrow. Because I'm always looking for that, uh, talk about first Wordle problems. <laughs> anyway, I think I'm going to make glean my, my guess, because I always try and come up with a word that, and, and I, I've been playing Wordle now for about two months. I wasn't the first one on it by any stretch, 
but I have been playing for just over two months and usually I can do three or four guesses. Okay. Um, sometimes I will remember the word from the previous day, not often. And I don't write it down because I don't want to become this whole wordle, you know, so my whole days around wordle. I can't. So I, I, I'm not playing it like that extensively, but I, sometimes I'll try and remember the word from the day before and go, okay, so it might not be, um, you know, yesterday's word had an X in it. So probably no X today and probably not one of the, other. and then I just pick, you have to really pick a word out of thin air and type in those, those five letters and see what happens. Uh, one time I got it in two, that was a, a luck, I guess. Uh, my original guess word was, um, what was that? I think it was cloud and, uh, had a couple of correct things in there. So I, so I, I thought, well, maybe it's this and bam, it was the second. So whatever it was, glean might be a good start tomorrow to play Wordle. So look what else I'm getting out of this interview with Elaine Merkus from Cambridge. Just this, um, I'm getting a Wordle word to start my Wordle challenge tomorrow. Plus, I'm, you know, as I said to her, just getting this great feeling of humanitarianism, volunteerism, when an organization like this is working, as others are around the world, but here's one out of Cambridge working uh, to say her best line, her best line, we're a food bank, but for the world, uh, to get um, to get food to people, sort of the surplus, the food that is not of the right color, not of the right shape. She mentioned baby carrots, and then I noticed she corrected herself because I don't know if you know this. I only learned this myself like, what, five years ago? There's no such thing as a baby carrot. You know the bag of baby carrots? There's no such thing as baby carrots. Am I blowing your mind, or did you know this already? I'm the last one who didn't know it. I don't know. But there's no such thing. It's a it's a big carrot that's shaved down to a certain size. And the only reason it's there's various sizes in a bag of baby carrots is because of the amount of they shave them down to look like a perfect little baby carrot, but it's not. It was a big, fat, ugly carrot that got shaved or whatever. Probably a better way of putting that. But uh, nevertheless, great work, Elaine Mercus, OntarioGleaners.org. Okay, now... Next hour, I promise, this is where we're going to go. We're going to talk about housing in uh, Ontario and in KW and what people are doing in Ontario, the government, to uh, make housing more affordable. A couple of different things we'll get to on Kitchener today, just after 2 o'clock. Kitchener today with your guest host, Larry Fedorik. I will be back uh, hosting this program again tomorrow as a guest host, as a fill-in. So um, thank you to uh, Kitchener Waterloo and thank you to City News 570 for uh, having me on and having me back as well. I just want to take a pause here for a second before we get to our housing topic. Uh, Bruce Willis, I'm, if you just heard of it, it's, it's, uh, I've not been following social today too much in the last little bit. Um, and just concentrating on kind of our topics of the show. So I just heard from City News 570 Newscast that Bruce Willis is stepping away because of um, a brain issue that could be the result of a stroke, a tumor, um, possibly. And and um, 
it, it causes problems communicating. I don't know. It just gave me pause for, for thought for that uh, very, very popular actor, an actor I've uh, watched over many years. And one of those actors rare for me because I, I like some, uh, I want to say obscure directors, but semi-obscure directors like um, Wes Anderson, people like that. And, and a Bruce Willis is one that can appear in a Wes Anderson movie and be amazing as a quirky side character. And then the next day, um, there he is in a, you know, some sort of great urban blockbuster uh, as the action hero and just, you know, the leading, the leading man and, and be that guy as well. He's pretty versatile, amazing individual. Um, personally, I don't know much about him, but he, you know, he always comes off well on these things. And we hope it is only a pause in his life. Um, I'm not talking much about his career. If he's stepping back from his career, okay. But I hope it's only a, sort of a pause and a small challenge in his life that it turns out to be. But just give me a pause for thought, that's all, uh, when I heard the story just now about Bruce Willis. So coming up before 3 o'clock, I, I, I do want to hear your thoughts on um, what you might be doing in the coming months that you haven't done for like two years. I, I've got a couple of plans. You know, the summer of Larry, maybe finally, I don't know. And are you going back to the office? These are topics I want to talk about after 2.30. But uh, now on the program, I want to talk about housing in Ontario and uh, a couple of moves by the Ontario government uh, to make it affordable for people to um, buy, to have ownership, to have a home that they own. And we'll get into what those things are. I know there have been similar moves in other parts of um the country, I know Nova Scotia recently was doing this. BC has, has looked at foreign ownership uh, and various tactics they can use to cut back on investors. It's not so much that we, you know, people moving in from other parts of the world. That's how Canada was built. But it's just it, foreign investors just buying these these uh, properties for investment and and driving up the price and all, all of that. That's one of the things they're looking at and other adding to the supply. Our guest is a broker with Remax Twin City Realty, David Schooley joining us. Hello, David. Good afternoon, Larry. Welcome to 570. Well, thank you so much. It's, it's great to be here. And David, let me, let me ask you, how's business? Um, business is good. You know, it's uh it's been a challenging few years, as everybody um, can imagine. Um, the supply issue is, uh, you know, uh, always a challenge. And uh, But overall, KW has always been a very, very healthy market. Now, healthy market, and, and I appreciate your position. You're a broker at REMAX. Does healthy market mean it's, it's good for brokers, or uh, does healthy market mean it's good for, for consumers and potential homeowners? Uh, well, when I say healthy market, I, I mean, I've... I've been in KW for, uh, you know, uh, the last three and a half decades and business in KW has always been pretty solid. So when I say healthy right. market, I don't, I'm not talking about, uh, you know, um, we're all happy that house prices are going up. Um, but uh, what I mean is if you're, if you're investing in KW, it's probably the best place to invest in all of North America. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and not just in great place to live. It's not just about, oh, you know, and, and I know, you know because David, tell me about this. This has always been the duality of home ownership for me. Is 
it's 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 just where you want to live and you want to have a nice place. You want to raise your family and you want to like where you are. But people always talk about the investment of it as well, right? You always have to be conscious of that. So you know what? Um, it's funny. Um, this is topical. I I met with clients yesterday that I moved from. Uh, KW to Ingersoll um, about five years ago because for the same price he could buy a lot more house and they're now ready to uh, sell and go to the east coast and be able to be mortgage-free and they're in their late 30s um, so I'm not really happy about that I love these clients and I would really like them mm-hmm. to stay but um, you know the the latest move, um, you know, increasing the, the uh, foreign buyers tax from 15 to 20 percent uh, and making it across Ontario. I don't think that's a bad move at all, but I don't think it's going um, to I don't think it's going to fix the housing market. So what what will what will make it more affordable? Um, you know, you know, my it's, it's not it's not KW, but my my uh, son and his partner, they they just had to leave and go elsewhere because of housing prices. What What is going to fix the market? Well, so, you know what, um, there's differing opinions on this. I don't think we're going to, we're not, I don't think we're going to see prices come down. I think we just need to um, come up with different ways to make it more affordable. Um, I think uh, I have a couple of ideas that I think if we could get them into place. Uh, so, so as an example for fractional ownership, um, which is very difficult to get through with banks, but own at least own a piece of uh, of a property um, until you can own a little bit bigger piece. Um, we we had uh, 35 and 40 year amortizations. Those need to come back, right? We you know we know that we're probably not going to be. I, I'd rather spend 40 years owning a house than you know the next 30 years being able to save up for the down payment to get started. So I think there's a right. number of things that we can do. Um, you know, maybe we can help first-time home buyers out with uh, grants for for down payments and those sort of things. But, Larry, we don't go have. Ahead, go ahead, I mean, sorry. yeah, we don't. I I mean, I'm looking at it. We we've had record sales numbers, and I'm not talking about prices, but the volume. Um, you know, we we sold more houses, more houses turned over in 2021 than we've ever had before. So it, it looks like a supply problem. Um, but we're selling more houses. So we're, we're, you know, we just need to build more houses and make it easier for uh, development and uh, easier for the ability to have, uh, you know, uh, duplexes and triplexes in different areas. Right. And I wanted to ask you about the supply issue, supply and demand. So, so just a greater supply will move us along, so to speak, right? It will help us. It, it will help us. So, um, you know, the, the, the new tax, as an example, when, when they brought that tax in, I was in, you know, I was in BC um, a year before, and that's when they implemented it in 2016, and they saw quite a dip in their market. We, we implemented it in, I believe, April of 17, and our market took, uh, you know, in Kitchener-Waterloo, um, and, you know, a lot of Ontario, most of Ontario took um, a little bit of a haircut, I guess you could say, and didn't recover back to that price until uh, almost two years later in 2019. But that was a pretty dramatic um, increase, right? So if we took those far, foreign buyers away, and I'm, not, and I'm not saying that the foreign buyers were here in KW, but, we, you know, we always suffer, suffer from the ripple effect from the GTA. So if they were mm-hmm. buying in, in Toronto and now all of that supply opens up, 
then those buyers are not coming to KW. So, um, but I, th- I think that this is a good move. I think they could have done it sooner, but I don't know that it's, it's certainly not going to fix the problem. Uh, interesting. And I was listening today to Nova Scotia defining foreign ownership as somebody out of province. Um, oh, I, that's interesting. I, I'm not sure how Isn't you interesting? out of province when you move there. Are you not from in province? Well, I mean, uh, I mean, but that was the thing. In other words, a foreign ownership had to be. You, if you had, if you were buying from Ontario, you had to move to Nova Scotia. You oh, couldn't just yes, own. I think from that's Ontario. a terrific idea. Just like my folks, yeah, are, yeah. are moving. Whether it's Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, I mean. Uh, Nova Scotia right now is running at, at a 35% increase um, in prices over last year. Um, unlike your hometown uh, back out in Saskatchewan, I think it was, right? That, uh, you well, know, it, many, many years ago, but yes. <laughs> so, you know, Saskatchewan is, is um, maybe that's where everyone should move because it, it's really, it's 3.7% this year, which um, I don't want everybody from Ontario and KW moving to Saskatchewan. But yeah, so uh, we, I, I understand that. And I think that's a good program. I, we don't want people just buying someplace else uh, and driving out local people. That's, I mean, that's the challenge we're having here. Our young people are moving. They're moving west and people from Woodstock are moving further west. And uh, so it, it would be it would be nice to have a uh, process in place where our kids can live in town and and uh, continue to stay here where they've grown up. But and I, I, I mentioned that off the beginning, because here's the deal. If you, you want to live where you want to live and you, you want to be a homeowner, it's better than than uh, not than throwing money away, I guess. So um, you do that. But you so you you buy a home and you're paying a little more today than you thought you would, but somehow you put it together. You do yeah. want that home to be worth more in five right. years, 10 years, 20 years, whenever it is yeah. that you're Absolutely. ready to go. You, so how, you, you don't want to say, okay, well, let's just stop the market. Everything's worth what it's worth. It's got to keep growing, right? It will continue to go. I mean, I, we have sales stats. Um, I've got them back to 1970. We've, you know, even with the, 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 um, Ripple we saw in 1990 where, you know, interest rates on my first house was 13 and a quarter percent. And, you know, even that um, what we call the big recession, we only saw a three or four percent decrease in in housing prices for a couple of years. And then they they bounce back. So I don't think prices are going down. If we if we have a small adjustment, I mean, we're this month we're operating at about nine hundred and fifty seven thousand average sale price in KW. And last month it was a little over a million. Um, that doesn't mean the market's crashing. It just means that there's um, maybe a slight adjustment. And we're, we, we're selling a lot more houses in, in March than we would in January and February. So um, I don't think the market is – we're certainly not crashing. But um, how do we get more houses out there? The, one of the challenges that we run into, right. and I'm running into this in three different spots where – you know, it's so hard to get building permits and, you know, the bureaucracy and, le- and red tape that we, we're, we go through. I have three projects that are that are kind of stalled and we're waiting and waiting and waiting for someone to get to the next step. And, and people need places to live that they would like to own. How, yeah. We're going through some pretty tough inflation right now. What, how does the general inflation affect the housing market? Um, you know what? I, I'm not sure that the average buyer um, that I'm seeing today 
really understands, um, you know, and, uh, you know, they know that they're paying a little bit more of the gas, that gas pumps and a little bit more for groceries, but I'm not sure that that's um, at this very moment, um, putting a, a damper on, on sales. You know, I mean, we've, like I said, we've, we've sold record numbers in, in, uh, in the last few years. Um, it's certainly not going to help. And it, I think where I feel bad is, is the people that are living, you know, um, that are just getting by and, you know, they're paying $50 more a week in, in gas and groceries. So, um, but I'm not sure that it's going to quell the, the person that's decided that they're going to move this year. I think they, they will make minor adjustments, you know, interest rates come into play, but a quarter of a point, um, I don't think we saw any real change in that yet. So, I, I think it's going to have to be long, longer term before we can see a, a direct uh, correlation between sales and, and right. uh, inflation. And, and lastly, uh, condo market. Uh, what is it like? Is it, is it viable? Um, well, so 10 years ago, that one-bedroom condo was a little bit more of a challenge um, to sell. It was not the most desirable. My first-time home buyers at that time uh, we're buying a 1,200 square foot uh, townhouse with a single car garage. Today, mm-hmm. that that condo market is uh, doing pretty well because that's the new that's the new first step for first time home buyers because it's the only thing that's affordable. And you know we're building we are building uh, lots of condos in in KW, but um, I don't think that we'll ever be in a position of having too many. Oh, interesting. Uh, very educational and informative, uh, informative rather, excuse me, David Schooley. Thank you so much. So just one last comment, Larry. I've got to make a yeah. comment about, about Bruce Willis. Uh, I know my wife is listening to this, and uh, I'd be amiss if I didn't say my favorite oh, actor. Uh, sure, yeah. And I, and I was so lucky to own one of his cars a couple of decades ago, and it was my no way. joy. Oh, yes. Uh, it was... <laughs> Yeah, so uh, any of my friends will know this story, um, but uh, uh, all the best to my favorite actor out there. Let's all put out good vibes, and uh, uh, and uh, uh, hopefully he's back making movies. Die Hard, uh, you know, I, I, that famous Christmas movie, um, you know, maybe he'll make yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, okay, okay, you okay. know what? Thanks so much for your time, Larry. David, David, I can't let you go without, can you give me at least a, a shorter version of how you came to own a Bruce Willis car? Okay, so I'm a car guy, always have been. Um, it was the headline car at the Classic Car Auction in Toronto in the late 90s. And um, so I I missed it the first time around. I bought it when it came back a couple of years later. And then um, when we found out we were having our second baby, who's now 19, um, the car had to go in order to buy a different house. So, um, <laughs> yes, we owned it for uh, three years. It, it, when he and Demi Moore were... Um, no longer a couple. His car collection was dispersed out into the universe, and we were lucky enough to, to um, own wow. a 69 Camaro Z White or uh, Dover White over Hugger Orange. Yeah. Oh, Incredible. Wow. Car. That is, I, I can picture that car. It was a dream yeah. car. So, and, so it wasn't yeah. a movie car, but it was one of his cars. No, wow. it was his own, out of his own collection. Yes. Yeah. He bought it in, in while he was doing uh, the movie Last, Stand, Last Man Standing. And uh, thank you for the sentiment on Bruce Willis as well. I yeah, think we all, you know what? Uh, we all share that. One of my so. personal favorites. Okay, great. Me Larry. too. You know what? Thank you so much and, and uh, great chatting with you. You as well, David. Thank you. David Schooley, uh, Bruce Willis, great story there at the end, but talking about housing.
in KW and uh, in Ontario. And uh, the housing market, uh, market rather, in general, David Schooley is uh, with uh, REMAX. He's a broker with REMAX uh, Twin City Realty. More of Kitchener today in just a moment. We don't want people just buying someplace else uh, and driving out local people. That's the challenge we're having here. Our young people are moving. They're moving west, and people from Woodstock are moving further west. And it would be nice to have a uh, process in place where our kids can live in town and and, uh, continue to stay here where they've grown up. Our guest moments ago, David Schooley, broker, Remax. Twin City Realty, talking about housing. And then at the end, because of the Bruce Willis story we just heard about Bruce Willis putting his career on hold and has some problems with brain function right now, uh, we hope for the best there. But David Schooley saying he once owned a Bruce Willis car, a Camaro, uh, out of the Bruce Willis collection that he bought at auction. Second guy I've met that owned a celebrity car. I, I used to be in a poker league for well over a decade. People from all strata and walks of life. And our commonality was we loved to play poker. And I was in a league. And I met a guy there. And he was telling me one day, we we both discovered we had a, a love of uh, Springsteen and a love of uh, cars. And he goes, you know, one of my first cars was Max Weinberg's Saab. And I'm like, well, how did you own Max Weinberg's Saab? Well, how did that happen? And he's like, well, he's from New Jersey. And lived a fairly easy drive to uh, New York City and saw an ad one day when he was a younger guy looking for a car for a Saab. And he went over to look at the Saab and it was Max Weinberg, the drummer for uh, E Street Band, you know, and Conan O'Brien eventually, but um, on the show. But Max Weinberg Saab. So now I know another guy, David Schooley, who had Bruce Willis's Camaro. Well, and of course, we did talk about housing uh, as well. Here's Terry. On Kitchener today. Go ahead, Terry. Hey, hi, Larry. Um, yeah, also, I'm glad that uh, your guest, uh, David uh, Schooley, mentioned that uh, Bruce Willis wasn't the greatest uh, Christmas movie of all time, bar none. Uh, Die Hard, which I think is an excellent Christmas movie. Don't, every every season I watch that. But listen, I, I'm one of these guys okay. that I, I, re, I reside in Woodstock. And like the, your guest said, I, I moved out that way because you, you get more house for the same amount of money. Cause I had a brand new house uh, built about eight years ago, and it's a new neighborhood. I was one of the uh, first uh, buyers in that the development, so I was in the first phase. And I've noticed a lot of investors have come in over the last couple of years and, and bought a lot of houses in there, and they're just sitting idle, like vacant for, I don't know, for some of them even up to two years. So. Like, wow. doesn't make any sense for you to say, well, we have a housing shortage. Well, do we really? Or do we have an investment short, uh, issue, like an investor's issue? Because they're just buying up these lots, sitting on them, hoping to get a, you know, a good uh, return on their investment and then cashing out. So, yeah, right. I mean, sometimes you have to think, well, is it a shortage or is it just uh, people are just scooping up these houses because they can and then phasing yeah. and squeezing people that need homes out of the market completely? Terry, thanks for the call. Out of time here. Otherwise, uh, we'd chat more. Terry, thanks for the call. Uh, I think, Terry, the answer is yes. Yes and yes. Uh, I think there's uh, several layers of uh, issues here, including investors, some of them foreign, some of them just trying to turn over houses. Uh, I I don't think we have enough affordable housing. Um, I I think there's wage issues, people being able to. I mean, it's, it's, it's very layered. And we have to start stripping away those layers and dealing with them individually as to why people can't uh, own 
homes and not be house poor, you know. It's Kitchener today. I'm Larry Fedorik. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. Welcome back to Kitchener today on City News 570. I'm Larry Fedorik, your guest host. Back tomorrow at this time as well. Looking forward to that. And um, I want to give out the numbers here because I want to hear from you. 519-570-2545. Also 1-800-570-5715, which is toll free, of course. And star 570 on your cell. I just want to bring you up to speed. If you're just joining the program, we're talking about housing in this area and housing in Ontario with a couple of moves by the Ontario government to get uh, how, more housing out there and make it affordable. David Schooley was our guest. He's a Remax a Twin City uh, realty broker. And uh, at the end, so so at the end, David brings up this thing about owning one of Bruce Willis's cars one day because of the Bruce Willis story we just heard about Bill, Bruce Willis having some health issues. And uh, we, we hope he's going to be okay. It's early stages of the story, so we don't know. But he, he, he once owned one of Bruce Willis's cars. And as he grew his family, he had to sell, you know, sell the toys, as it were. Probably not the first guy to ever do that, first person to ever do that. Got to get rid of your toys. You're, you're, we're adulting now. So, you know, uh, so he had to sell the car. I, I, I mentioned that a friend of mine bought Max Weinberg's, uh, Max Weinberg's Saab back in the day. Uh, he lived in Jersey and answered an ad in, um, New York for, for sale cars. A young guy wanted a car, got a Saab, Max Weinberg Saab, celebrity cars. Well, and not, and not, well, I guess in the Bruce Willis sense, it was more of a collector's item, but for my friend, it was just a car and it happened to belong to a, a drummer for Bruce Springsteen, you know? So, but, but what David said, and then what our caller, Terry, I think it was just before the break re-upped was they, they mentioned Bruce Willis die hard and how it's one of their favorite Christmas movies. And I don't know if they were trying to egg me on or, or somehow trying to open this hornet's nest of debate on, um, because usually we don't have this debate until late November, early December. And believe me, I've done enough talk shows over the years where this comes up every December. I'm surprised to even have it come up in March. And and if you have thoughts on it, share. But I, I didn't really mean to make this a topic, but is Die Hard a Christmas movie? I really don't think that because it takes place at Christmas and his wife that he's going to pick up at work is at a Christmas party before all terrorist hell breaks loose. Uh, and occasionally I think there's a, there is maybe a Christmas tune in the background at one point. I don't, I don't know that it makes it a Christmas movie, but I, I really don't mind that people think of it as a Christmas movie or make it a Christmas tradition. You can watch any movie you want at Christmas, any movie that's comfortable. In that vein, one of my favorite movies of all time is The Princess Bride. And if you know the movie, uh, Grandpa, played by Peter Falk, comes in to read a story to his grandson because his grandson is under the weather. And then the story is acted out as the Princess Bride, medieval times, so on and so forth. If you look around the kid's room for all of the little things the kid has, the kid the kid has in his room, he does have a Santa Claus hung up on his closet door, and there is 
I think a Christmas thing or two on this little bedstead behind him. So I'm like, okay, is Princess Bride a Christmas movie? Because they obviously it's Christmas time and he's there. I mean, I don't know. Uh, if you want, like I said, I, I wanted to move on to a couple other things, but if you want to chime in on this, why not? We'll have the diehard debate in March. How weird is is that? Uh, Rudy is calling the show. Hey, Rudy, how are you? I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing? Good, good. Great. Um, my three Chris, famous uh, favorite Christmas movies, Home Alone 1, Home Alone 2, and Die Hard. Oh, okay. And, uh, so obviously you bought... I just like if I say to you, that. why is Die Hard a Christmas movie? What's your response to me? Well, I, I seen it when it first came out, which was in the, what, uh, the mid-80s. And um, I always watch it at Christmas time. It's just a thing to do. You know, because it was right. Christmas when they, um, about a Christmas party that, like you say, the, the terrorist thing and everything goes a little crazy. And it's a very entertaining movie. And, uh, oh, no question. Uh, I'd just like to say a fact about uh, Bruce Willis, that he was actually born in Germany. Um, wow. I, you know what? I think I did hear that one time. I, uh, you know, things you forget. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, because his father married a German girl, and they actually named the street after him in the town that he was born in. Wow. Cool. Rudy, thanks for the call. Great call. Thank you very much. All right. There you have it. So yeah, great. That, thank you, Rudy. Uh, that, that'll, that'll be part of our discussion. I'll tell you what I was kind of thinking about talking about um, in these next few minutes. And again, we're at 519-570-2545-1800-570-5715, toll free or star 570 on your cell phone. Uh, we can ha- kind of have a little bit of a potpourri mix here. Uh, Bruce Willis, Christmas movie, Die Hard. I don't know. Okay, sure. That's out there. But uh, I also thought, because I've been thinking about things I want to do this summer. Nothing major. I'm not talking, you know, European vacation or anything. Just things around that I'm going to do this summer that I haven't really done in two years. Uh, because I, even when we opened up a little bit in 2020 and towards the end of the summer in 21, I kind of stayed home anyway, uh, and was overly cautious and just did the necessities. And if I got outside, it was for walks in the neighborhood, all good. You know, I mean, it's all good, but so what do I want to do this summer that I haven't done for a couple of summers? Is there a place that I want to go, a trip I want to make, a market I want to visit, a, you know, the Butter Tart Festival. I, I mean, I don't know. I, I'm kind of thinking in that area, what do you want to do this spring or summer that you haven't done for two years? I'm going to throw that thought out there. And last thought also is, uh, are you going back to the office? Does this apply to you? Uh, is it a strict office back to the office policy now? What a lot of people are saying is survey says don't want to go. Don't want to go back. Don't like it. I like, I like what I'm doing. I'm more productive. It's better. Uh, and others are saying I'm willing 
to go to a hybrid mix because you know what I do kind of miss getting out to the office, seeing my friends, the office vibe, the work activity, um, at, which will look different. But uh, people are saying I, I wouldn't mind a hybrid situation where I'm in three days a week, not every day or two or whatever it is. Because we, we really know, and this is not every industry, I get it, but we really do know how to work from home now. We sure figured that out. And uh, so those are kind of the thoughts. Uh, what are you going to do this year? What are you going to do this spring and summer now? That I know we're in a sixth wave and we have to be cautious and this is not over. But I think people feel like, okay, this is going to be my summer now. What are you going to do? Are you going back to work? Are you going back to the office? Are you going to watch Die Hard at Christmas? I don't know. Lots of things to talk about. Grant is joining the show. Hello, Grant. Hi. Uh, this is in reference to Terry's call. I've listened to Terry okay. Flynn for a lot of years. And uh, I know it's background to some degree. And maybe I'm wrong, but I... Terry has been like Bruce Willis when it comes to his, he is separated and I think divorced, but anyways, uh, love can be a terrible thing. Uh, and that's what the Die Hard movie at Christmas time is that, uh, about. And uh, I've been there and doing that too. Uh, no, no matter how much uh, your partner has uh the problems she's created you financially uh family wise but uh we could put ourselves in that movie because uh we're that kind of guy right right all right grant thanks for the call grant appreciate that um well i think there's a lot to unpack there did you did you get that feeling there was a lot to unpack there and i'm not sure if grant knows terry I don't know if that was information that Terry would want shared, whatever, or that we would ever think is accurate. I, we're going to assume that it is, Grant. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that is that is part of the storyline, obviously, of uh, Die Hard that is part of the appeal, is that emotional appeal, the relationship between them, because it's not necessarily the best relationship. Um, you know, I, I love the um, the metaphor, I guess, in the movie. At one point, Bruce Willis is barefoot, and he um, he, has, he ends up stepping on, I think it's broken glass. Yeah, it is broken glass, because the windows get blown out. Uh, I was thinking maybe it was nails or something else, but it's broken glass. And, and, and I love that, that analogy, that metaphor in the movie, that that's what he's doing. Uh, because he's a cop, but also for her, he's, he's walking across broken glass. I mean, it's... You know, it's it's a great movie. I mean, I love the movie, and it inspired sequels, and it also inspired um, the movie Speed. If you've ever heard the story of how Speed was conceived, it was like, okay, uh, Die Hard, but on a moving vehicle. That's kind of the pitch of of Speed. So it inspired a genre in a way, I guess you could say. Here's Lorraine on Kitchener Today. Welcome, Lorraine. Hi. Um, as far as two things uh, going forward, well, right now, actually now for a month, I've been going to the pool, going swimming and doing laps and exercising, and that's been wonderful. And looking ahead so, to... Lorraine, let me ask you, L Lorraine, let me ask you, is that something you sort of 
let slide a bit and now, and now you're back well, into it? Yes, because we couldn't go. All oh, right, of course, yeah. Right, right, we couldn't go. But and also now I'm looking forward to going to the uh garden shows to the to see what's new in gardening, to go into the Toronto Garden Show and all Stratford and all kinds of them. There'll be one in Kitchener too, I'm sure. But I'm really looking so forward you, to that too. All right. So you're, that's great call, Lorraine. Thank you so much. You're going to cover okay. the circuit of garden shows. Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, Bill is on the program. Hello, Bill. Hey, good day. How are you? Good. How are you, Bill? Not too bad. I don't want to drive backwards here, but going back to the Christmas thing about the movies. I don't okay, first of all, Bill, let me Bill, let me interrupt you. We're not driving backwards. We're just going all over the road. That's all. Don't worry about it, man. Hey, that's the best, that's the best route. It's all about the adventure, not where you're going. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Well, and I don't, I'm going to be technical here in order for it to be a Christmas movie. Since Christmas means, I think it means the birth of Christ. It can't be a Christmas movie if it's not in somewhat surrounding around that idea. Now I get the whole idea that the secular world has said, you know, there's a lot of good messages, love and mankind. So I get that part of it, but I mean, come on. You know, if it's going to be a Christmas movie, I think that it has to have something to do with that idea, doesn't it? Well, this has been, or or even the commercialization of it. So here's an elf leaving the North Pole and Santa's house to make his way <laughs> back to. So, I mean, but that's all sort of commercial stuff. Um, yeah, and I love Christmas that. vacation, you know, it's. Yeah. Those themes are the ones I'm looking for when it comes to something I would call a Christmas movie. Sure, and and I I can go with that, but you know I'm a bit of a technical nerd sometimes. I'm like, well, it can't be, but yeah, I can go with that spirit of Christmas and and all that. But I just think that when that message is left out, it's I get it. And as far as yeah. the summer, as far as this summer, I just wanted to get here. I just got back from Florida like a less than a week ago. And I came back to minus 20 windshield factor. I was like, right. what the heck? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I wanted to get here too. Bill, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, happy happy holidays to you. <laughs> We're having the, the, the inadvertently started the is Die Hard a Christmas movie debate here in March, at the end of March. Not that it doesn't feel like Christmas outside, you know, I'm just saying. But uh, no, and, and if you're just joining the program, our guest talking about housing, David Schooley of Remax, mentioned Bruce Willis, Bruce Willis's car, and he kind of just dropped that little thing in there that die, Bruce Willis was one of his favorite Christmas movies, Die Hard. And I'm like, oh, okay, you're one of those guys that thinks it's a Christmas movie. And then a caller called and said, oh, yeah, it's a Christmas movie. And I was like, uh-oh, well, let's open that up a little bit here and and uh, throw it out there if that's what you want to chime in on, because I haven't had, you know, I wasn't doing a talk show in December this year, and and for years, every Christmas, every November, December, some sometimes we'd have that discussion, Die Hard, Christmas movie. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Back and forth, you know. So it's kind of fun to have it now. Thank you for chiming in on that. Also kind of asking, not kind of asking, what am I saying? Asking, uh, what are you looking forward to doing this spring or summer? What is something that you're going to do this year you haven't done for a couple of years? Uh, I dabble in, uh, as a hobbyist, not a professional, street photography. 
always appealed to me. I always wanted to do it. So many years ago, I upgraded uh, the camera a couple of times and said, okay, I'm going to try this. I'm going to get out. And street photography is very uh, interesting. Uh, I have high regard for the people who do it well because they're almost like day-to-day journalists of life, um, sociologists in their way, keeping a record. You know, when you see this, these great pictures of, uh, I don't know, 1965, uh, and here's people walking down the street, and there's parked cars, and there's a store sign, and it all looks like 1965, and you're like, wow, how, how you know, people looked and what they wore and the cars we... And it's like there was a street photographer who had to kind of see that and take it. And that's kind of, I, I'm oversimplifying it because there's an art to it as well. Uh, and now I'm actually on this tangent, which I didn't mean to be, but I was like, I enjoyed that. I enjoyed getting out. The walking was good. They just people watching because I love to people watch, you know, grab some shots here and there of something that's interesting or be able to compose a photograph in your mind and snap it. And, and sometimes you got to be quick because it's a moment you don't want it to pass and, and I, I thought, boy, I didn't get to do that, you know. Um, uh, maybe this summer I can get, and maybe I can get pictures of people who aren't behind a mask necessarily, although if that's all it is, then we'll get those too. But, I mean, that's that's me. What do you want to do this summer that you haven't done for a couple of years? And, uh, and the other final kind of, uh, in our potpourri of topics, uh, in our, I was looking, in our stew, oh, never mind, in, in our variety of topics, are you going back to work? Or are you going back to the office, I guess, more specifically? Or is it going to be a hybrid? Or is that is that coming up in your life? We'll get you the phone numbers and return in a moment with Kitchener today. And I'm your guest host, Larry Fedorik. I'm breaking the talk show rules here because, you know, the rule, I guess, would be, you know, pick a topic, present a point, ask a question, and concentrate on that topic we just got all over the road here in the last half hour, which is fine. Uh, I, I, I I enjoy it. I was going to say it was kind of a related discussion about what are you going to do this summer or spring that you haven't done for two years? And a related kind of COVID topic was, are you going back to the office? Uh, are they asking you to go back? Is it going to be a hybrid thing? But then inadvertently, the Die Hard is a Christmas movie topic kind of came up. It came up organically. So I'm not going to leave it alone. So we're just kind of on all those three silly, well, one silly thing and two others. Uh, Mark is on Kitchener today. Hello, Mark. Go ahead. Hi, how's it going? Good, Mark. How are you? I'm doing excellent. Yeah, you're asking about what uh, people might be doing this summer. Yeah, what are you going to do? I'm going to grow a pot plant in my backyard this summer. Because I can, and out of curiosity. So you've never you've never grown uh, you've never ha- homegrown before. Yeah, actually I have, but not on my property. Now it's allowed. Right, right, right. Uh, you say a plant, so that that's really the plant. You're not gonna you know it's not gonna be half the yard or anything. Oh no, just one plant. Uh, yeah. Watch it grow. Uh, it's kind of a cool plant, actually, man. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. So, it, so gardening, Mark, I, in a general sense, you're going to get into gardening more. Gardening? Yeah. Uh, no, no gardening. Okay. Mark, thanks for the call. <laughs> 
uh, it, it, I, I, maybe Mark is already consumed. I don't know. Those, was that was that vague? You're growing a plant, so you're gardening, but it's a cannabis plant, so you're gardening. No. Okay. Well, here's here's uh, here's Jim. Hey, Jim. Hey. How's it going? Good. What's up, Jim? Oh, hang on. I'm just confused here. Well, it needed. Sorry, sorry. I I'm in the car and I couldn't get my Bluetooth to let go of the phone for a second. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, yeah. All right. You you good so, to go? Yeah, all good to go. Uh, I'm I'm uh, all about uh, getting back into the social that's been missing for the last couple of years. So you mentioned specifically the Butter Tart Festival earlier in the program. Yeah. Uh, regular attendant of the uh, the big one up in Midland almost a kilometer yep. long section of street. Um, but I'm going to be going to that one. I'm going to be going to the butter tart festival in Paris when it happens and food festivals in general, just being outside in a big crowd with lots of good food and music and all of that sort of stuff. Very excited to, uh, to get back into the opportunity to enjoy that type of activity again. Now that the world is finally able to catch its breath without sucking in a virus of some sort. Yeah, I, I'm not sure about that last part, but yeah, I think we are going to go out there. And uh, Jim, thanks for the call. Uh, I th these are all good ideas. I, Jim, you and I should wear name tags because we'll run across each other. I'm sure at one of these things. Uh, the, I mentioned the Butter Tart Festival only because I've uh, honestly the big one. I've never been, but my friend goes every year, and so I hear you know I get um, butter tarts from her, and then I always hear about how great this thing is, and I was like, one of these years. And maybe this will be the year. Uh, my name is Larry Fedora, guest hosting on Kitchener today. I'll be back tomorrow to do this. Thank you very much for your participation in the show today. Uh, really enjoyed it. We'll see you tomorrow at noon. I remind you to check out my podcast. It's called Later That Same Life, wherever you get your podcasts. Also on my YouTube channel, easy to Google, easy to find. And we'll talk tomorrow.